The Mountain Vista Baptist Church podcast features the preaching and teaching of Pastor Robert Perry and the guest speakers of Mountain Vista Baptist. The purpose of this podcast is to help believers grow, to edify the saints, and to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. Four elders and those uh, the, the four beasts inside the throne room, and then of course uh, they were singing out, uh, uh, "Worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor." In verse number eleven, then chapter number five comes along, and we find that John sees in the Lord's right hand this book, and we know that book to be more like a scroll. It's uh, sealed with seven seals, and uh, as he's seeing and taking all of this in. Well, one uh, kind of starts to get distraught because it seems that there's none worthy to be able to open the book. And uh, so therefore, uh, they're pondering and wondering, but then one makes the statement, well, here comes one that can. It's the Lion of the tribe of Judah. And uh, Jesus Christ, of course, comes and uh, he takes the, the, the scroll out of the Father's right hand and uh, they strike up a chorus of worship and praise as we looked at all that as we move through chapter number five. And I want to just point out in chapter six and verse number one, it says, and I saw when the lamb opened one of the seals, and I, and I heard, as it were, the noise of thunder, one of the four beasts saying, come and see. And I saw, and behold, a white horse, verse number two, and he that sat on him had a bow, and a crown was given unto him, and he went forth conquering and to conquer. And so we even said in the last couple of weeks that as Jesus opens up the scroll, as he breaks one seal, with every, event of a, uh, with every time that a seal breaks, an event starts to take place on earth. And we discussed that to an extent. And as we move into chapter number six, we're going to begin uh, to see these things take place. In fact, it's the beginnings and the culmination of what we had seen to be the seven, Daniel 70 weeks. And so, uh, just as way of reference to draw our attention back to that, those 70 weeks began back with the uh, time of J- Jerusalem being taken and the decree issued, uh, those seven years there, and then the wall finished until Christ coming or Messiah cut off. And so we've had all of those times take place, and then there was a pause, right? And uh, we kind of are on timeout as we had discussed, and in this culminating period of our current age is the, is, uh, the tribulation period, those last seven years. In this period of history that's still to come, the Lord will carry out a series of literally earth or world-shaking events. Uh, Things will just completely come upon this earth and shake things up. According to Daniel chapter number 9, we have already found the purpose of why these seven years are going to conclude and and why the events that are unfolding. Uh, The purpose is focused on the Jewish nation and an old covenant. And we uh, discussed that even to further extent last week. And uh, so naturally, much of what we learn about this seven-year period is going to be found in the Old Testament itself, because that's where the covenant was made and found and so on and so forth. Uh, Israel, though, as we saw already, was warned uh, that if they... um, Israel was warned repeatedly uh, by the prophets about this coming period of judgment, uh, but this time of tribulation, that it would bring them to their knees and ultimately unto Christ, and that's the whole purpose of it. The ultimate purpose of these last seven years, the culminating of this age, is to uh, be able to bring uh, the Jews back to Jesus, their Messiah. And as we prepare to enter into the events that are unfolding 
in uh, the seven-year period. As we begin to uh, consider what is all going to take place and how it's going to, the Lord is going to use uh, this tribulation period to work on the Jews' hearts and to bring them back to Him and such, so on and so forth, um, we, we studied the transition already from the church age until this final seven-year period. We've studied that the church is not, not going to be a part of this, and we're going to be resurrected out or raptured out, as we discussed. And uh, we first learned that the tribulation is the final seven years of an uh, age immediately prior to the second coming of Christ. We found this information in Daniel 2 and Daniel chapter 7. And uh, we find that this is the time that as we see there on the screen that began with Babylon uh, coming as well, it, which told us that the second coming of Christ cannot be imminent in that way then. We discussed that as well. Now, the, the rapture of the church, that is imminent. No man knows that time, not even the Son himself. We understand that. Um, but uh, the second coming of Christ is not imminent. There's things that have to happen before he comes and sets up his kingdom, in fact. Um, and so we find that as we've been studying, we learn that the church's time on earth would end prior to these events in the seven years. And so we see here on the screen the church age and then a covenant made beginning this tribulation and the scrolls are un, uh, un being unfolded or uh, opened, uh, the, the seals broken as we go through this time of seven years. And uh, as we find these events taking place, uh, we, we find that the Re book of Revelation tells us the church age uh, is the things that are, as we saw in that outline already uh, here this evening. And the things that come after this, the seven years, take place after the church age. And secondly, we learned even that the events uh, are appointed for Israel by terms of an old covenant. And since the church was not part of that covenant, they're not, they're not appointed under wrath, as Paul would put it. And finally, we saw that John is in heaven, and he's witnessing Jesus preparing to open these scrolls, or this land deed, as we said. And since he has the right to judge over the land of Israel and all the world, and as he opens the scrolls, events are unfolding, and these events are described as we see them taking place in chapter 6 all the way through chapter number 18. Now, as we're about to move into this chapter of chapter 6 of the book of Revelation, uh, there might be just one more question on your mind. If not, after we discuss it tonight, you're like, we'll probably, you'll probably say, I didn't think of it, but I'm glad we discussed it. And the question uh, would no doubt hold a great deal of interest in the world of Christianity today. And that question centers around the timing of the end. So the church takes its exit. The church is raptured out, it's, it's resurrected out, and the tribulation begins, the seven years begins, but uh, what about the timing of it? How does this all unfold? Well, we've already learned, as I mentioned earlier, that the second coming of Christ can be predicted from a certain point. From the beginning of the tribulation, there's exactly seven years, and then He's coming, and He's setting up the, the kingdom. Now, the rapture of the church, the resurrection of the church, is different, as I mentioned already tonight. We don't know that time, and the Scripture even says the, the, the Son does not even know that time either. But we do know that uh, in Daniel 9, it told us that a covenant would be signed between a certain world leader at the, uh, uh, of that day and Israel's leaders that would per, uh, permit them to have temple worship and sacrifice once again. And so we know that's the beginning of it. We know that starts it. That's kind of like uh, the kickoff, if you may, 
or the tip-off in basketball, or the first pitch in baseball, or whatever sport you want to throw out there in the beginning of it, uh, the covenant that is, is signed uh, between this world leader and the leader of is, leaders of Israel is the beginning of these seven years of tribulation. And we know that the church is going to be removed prior to that time because of the fact that we're not appointed under wrath. But despite the facts of the dates of the church's removal is unknown, we do know that it's close to the beginning of Revelation. Are you following along with me tonight? We do know that when the church is removed, the beginning of the tribulation is imminent, all right? And so the question then that one might have, does the Bible actually give us any information as to signs of when the tribulation is going to take place and when it and what needs to happen so that it can take place and how close we are to the end of this age that we're in before Christ comes. And in fact, the Bible does give us some insight into all of that. And uh, tonight, I'd like you to take your Bibles and go to Matthew 24, and we're going to read in verses 1 through 8. We'll look at a few different places as well as we go along. But in Matthew 24... And we're going to look at verses 1 to, through 8 uh, as we go along tonight, specifically verses 1 through 3 to begin. And if you want to either open your Bible or follow along with me as we look at the screen here this evening as well, because I got it up there. And uh, we find uh, this uh, portion of Scripture is known as what we call the Olivet Discourse. And in Matthew 24, verses 1 through 3, it says, And Jesus went out and departed from the temple, and his disciples came to him for to show him the buildings of the temple. And Jesus said unto them, See ye not all these things? Verily I say unto you, There shall not be left there one stone upon another that shall not be thrown down. Verse number three, And as he sat upon the Mount of Olives, the disciples came unto him privately, saying, Tell us when shall these things be? What shall be the signs of thy coming? And of the end of the world. Our Father, we thank you for this night, and we thank you for all that you do for us. Lord, I just ask that you give me the word to speak as I deliver the message here tonight, that you'd help us to draw close to you because of it, that you'd help us to sense the urgency of our hour as well, and uh, Lord, that we just honor and glorify you in everything that is said and done so your will might be accomplished. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. As we begin this chapter, chapter 24 of the book of Matthew, we find uh, the scene unfolding, and I want you to notice with me first point number one here tonight, and that is the ask of Jesus. Again, we see on the screen those first three verses that we just read, but at the end, you'll notice some highlighted parts. The reason why I have those highlighted is because they are specific questions uh, that the um, disciples ask Jesus about the end of this age. And I, let me state that about that word world at the end of verse number three, the end of the world. Uh, we do know this, that as soon as Jesus comes to, uh, to, to finish this age and to set up his kingdom, that his kingdom is going to be set up here on this current world, on this earth. So the statement, the end of the world, is not an obliteration of this world. It is speaking of when this age will come to an end. In fact, that word, the Greek word that was found as world there could have been translated as age as well. And so we find that when the disciples are asking that, they're literally asking about the ending of a certain time frame, uh, not a destruction of the physical world as we know it. 
And so they ask Jesus these questions, and specifically, we find uh, three in this verse. We'll find a, uh, another as we move along here this evening. But tonight, we see, number one, the ask of Jesus. And this a scene that is unfolding in Matthew 24 is actually unfolding and taking place just two days prior to Jesus' uh, trial, and which would ultimately lead to his death. Jesus had arrived into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, and uh, since then, he's been spending days teaching in the temple court as we lead into this time in chapter 24. At night, he leaves the city of Jerusalem, and he uh, spends in the city of Bethany on the other side of the Mount of Olives. And so think with me about the scene. Jesus is in Jerusalem in the daytime. As the day comes to an end, and he, he would spend the night in Bethany, so he would leave Jerusalem, he'd have to go through the Mount of Olives to get to Bethany on his way there. And in fact, that's what is happening as we open up chapter 24 of the book of Matthew. In verse number one, and Jesus went out and departed from the temple, and his disciples came with him for to show him the buildings of the temple. So picture the scene with me. Jesus has spent the entire day in the temple courts teaching and, and so on and so forth. And as he's leaving, he's making his way to Bethany that night to be able to get his rest. And he's just days before his trial, days before his death. And uh, he has his disciples with him as he's going along. And as they're leaving, Jesus, no doubt, is probably thinking about the days that are coming. He's got on his mind what's going to happen. He's got on his mind his uh, imminent death and so on and so forth. But his disciples are oblivious to all of that. And we know this to be the case because when we read in verse number one that the disciples were with him, they didn't come up to him and, Jesus, you seem heavy. Jesus, you seem like there's something might be bothering you. You're just off a little bit tonight. Can we pray about something with you? None of those things. The Bible says that his disciples came, in verse number one, with him, for to show him the buildings of the temple. What was on their mind was not what was on Jesus' mind. What was on their mind was the amazing construction of the temple in Jerusalem of that day. Now, my friends, Herod's temple uh, that was built during that time was one of the most elaborate and one of the most impressive constructions uh, ever undertaken in all of history. In fact, the, uh, the foundation stones uh, were so massive, they were so large, that many still have trouble even today conceiving how they were constructed and moved into place so precisely. I mean, this, this was a, a miracle of ancient uh, uh, construction, I'm telling you, the way this, this uh, temple was built. In fact, this, built, this temple uh, was so extravagant that it took a very long time to complete in its construction. It took 40 years after the death of Christ before it was actually fully completed, only quickly to be destroyed a few years later. But so naturally, the fact that these disciples were fascinated by its architecture and its design and construction, uh, it, it's not uh, odd to think about that. But as they point out the building to Jesus, he doesn't respond to them with like, oh yeah, that was a really good design choice right there. Uh, they, they must have Chip and Joanna uh, working on their design team or something like that. that it wasn't something along those lines. Uh, he, he responds to his disciples uh, with a very provocative saying, if you may. He says this, look at verse number two. See ye not all these things? Verily I say unto you, there shall not be left here one stone upon another that shall not be thrown down. 
He says, yeah, you guys are marveling at how wonderful and magnificent these, this construction is, even though it's not all the way completed yet. It was most of the way completed, but although it's not completed yet, you're marveling at this great construction. But let me tell you something, it's going to be destroyed, brick by brick. Now, my friends, what Jesus said to the disciples that day would be like somebody coming up to us in early 2001 and saying that the World Trade Center towers were going to be destroyed brick by brick. We think, there's no way. I mean, these, these things are massive erections of a building. There's, they're, they're strong. There's no way. That, and we know they came tumbling down, right? And so in a similar fashion, we would, be, we would just be stricken by the words of somebody predicting as such. It was hard for the disciples to believe. And Yet it is true, it was true that it would uh, be a, 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 a destruction of the temple. But it, it's a means, it means, though, that the end of the world had come, or so it would seem in their mind, if that was to be true. So Jesus' comment resulted in the disciples going silent for a little bit of their journey. Notice verse number one, verse number two, he tells them he'll be thrown down. They were on their way out of Jerusalem, on their way out of the temple when they're having this conversation, and then it picks up when they're back in the Mount of Olives. Verse number three, it says, they sat down on uh, the Mount of Olives. The disciples came up to him privately saying, tell us, when shall these things be? What shall be the signs of thy coming and of the end of the world? And so the disciples were so astonished at Jesus' words, they're like, they had no words to say themselves. So they went silent for a while. When they finally get to the Mount of Olives, they take a rest, and they, curiosity got the best of them. They said, Jesus, you've got to tell us what all this means. Tell us the signs. Show us what's going to take place. And their questions actually become the roadmap to navigating the passages that follow in chapter 24 and in the Matthew 25 as well. In verse number three, as you see highlighted on the screen, they ask particularly three questions. When will, these, when will these things happen? What will the signs of your coming be? And what will be the signs of the ending of the world or this t period of the world, this age? In fact, the book of Luke, re, uh, accounting for this same uh, story in Luke 21, 7, he records even an additional question, and we find that in blue in verse number uh, 7, he says, and they asked him, saying, Master, but when shall these things be, and what sign uh, will there be when these uh, things shall come to pass? And so Luke adds some additional details to the first question. And what they wanted to know, they wanted to know the signs that the temple destruction was about to take place. What, how do we know that this is about to take place? Because if this grand temple is going to be destroyed, then surely it must be a catastrophic worldwide phenomenon that's going to do it. That's what's happening in their mind, right? More than likely, they want to know so that they're not near that location. They don't want to be a part of it, right? But if we put together these questions from both passages, and I've colored them in such a way as they will, they will, they will match with as we go along and look at these questions as well. But here's the apostles' questions again. When will these things take place? And a sub-question of that is what will be the signs of these things? What are the signs of your coming? What are the signs of the ending of the age? Those are the uh, four particular questions that are asked. But what follows in Matthew chapter number 24 is Jesus answers these questions for the disciples. But in order for us to interpret his answers correctly and properly, 
we must take note of two important things as he answers them. First, Jesus adds actually an additional uh, question that the disciples didn't think to ask. And that's highlighted in white or in verse number, uh, point number four there. And uh, Jesus' statement is, what are not signs that we are near the end of the age? And then also, um, he inserts that commentary on that. But the second thing we see is that we must note that Jesus doesn't answer these questions in the same order that they were asked. So here the disciples ask particularly four questions. Jesus begins to answer those questions, and he answers those questions by answering first a question they did not ask, and that is some things that aren't signs of the ending of the age. And then he takes their four questions and answers them in a different pattern than the pattern in which they ask them. Is everybody following with me here this evening? You might say, Preacher, why didn't he just answer them in the way that they asked them? Well, let me ask you a question. If someone were to ask you a series of questions, one after after the other after the other, are you always prone to answering them in the same order they ask them? A lot of times we'll say, well, let me address your third question first, or let me address that second one first. And see what I'm saying? Because you are trying to build a case on it or whatever. More than likely, that might be part of the reason as to why, um, why he did it that way. But here's the, the disciples' questions, uh, as we see on the screen, and here is how Jesus answers them. Jesus answers them first by answering his question that he addresses, what are not the signs that the end is near? Then he answers their third question. Then he answers question one and that sub-question of question one. And lastly answers the second one, what are the signs of your coming? Now the context of the chapter reveals this different order, but only if we're paying careful and close attention to the text. So Jesus then begins to answer the questions of the disciples. Now listen, this portion of Scripture has led a lot of people to try to state that there's a mid-tribulation rapture or even a post-tribulation rapture and so on and so forth. But it's important to always take the context into what is taking place in Scripture. Before we move on and look at Jesus' answers that are going to give us things to look for for the ending of this age, I want you to look back at verse number 1 of chapter 24 in Matthew again and look at it with me. And I'm going to ask you to say some words out loud. So look at it right there on, in your Bible. And Jesus went out and departed from the where, church? Temple. All right, let's do it again. Jesus went out and departed from the where, church? Temple. And his who was with him? Disciples. Disciples. Those two things are vitally important in interpreting what Jesus is saying and what event he's talking about in context. This is not speaking about the coming of Jesus for the church. Because the church doesn't go to the temple, and the disciples were Jewish. Are you following what I'm saying? He is speaking directly to a, to a Jewish audience that is concerned about the coming of his kingdom, the, the kingdom the Messiah will set up, not about a rapture of the church. And so those two clues alone give us the information and details necessary to know this is not talking about his coming for the rapture. It is talking about his coming for the second coming. And so we've seen the ask of Jesus tonight, but number two tonight, notice the answers from Jesus. 
In Matthew 24, verses 4 through 6, as we read on, And Jesus answered and said unto them, Take heed that no man deceive you. For many shall come in my name, saying, I am Christ, and shall deceive many. And ye shall hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that ye be not troubled, for all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. See, Jesus' first warning is that no one in the church uh, should be misled into believing that Jesus had already returned. See, notice with me how he answers his own question first, things that are not signs of the end. What is, a si- what is not sign of an end? People claiming that Jesus has already come. People claiming to be Jesus himself. From the time that Jesus left this earth and ascended into heaven, there has been wackos that have been claiming to be the Messiah, claiming to be Jesus, claiming to be the Savior. And my friends, Jesus says to the church, you don't have to worry and you don't need to be deceived Because when we're talking about the coming of the second coming of Christ, the ending of this age, when Jesus comes back to set up his his earthly kingdom in that millennial reign, the Christian doesn't have to worry about missing that when somebody says, hey, I'm Christ and you've missed out on it, you need to believe on me. Because who's going to be with Jesus when he returns for his millennial reign? Believers are, the church are. So if, if you're a believer, if you're saved today, and some wacko saying, hey, I'm Jesus, or I'm the Messiah, I'm the Savior, you need to believe in me, we don't have to worry that we've missed the boat, because we know he's not truly the Messiah, because we will be with the Messiah when he comes back. Follow what I'm saying here this, tonight? And so nevertheless, we find uh, that false messiahs are a constant practice in this age, no doubt. Next, Jesus says, though, not to be worried over wars or rumors of wars. And again, in Luke 21, verses 8 and 9, he says, And he said, Take heed uh, that ye be not deceived, for many shall come in my name, saying, I am Christ, and the time draweth near. Go ye not therefore after them. But when ye shall hear of wars and uh, commotions, be not terrified, for these things must first come to pass, but the end is not by and by. So there will be constant rumors of, uh, of wars, and there will be constant um, uh, 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 turmoil that is taking place. But Jesus is saying these two things, false messiahs and wars, do not equate to the fact that this time has drawn to an end or is about to draw to an end. So next time you hear on the news that Korea, North Korea is moving into place to shoot off some missile, We don't have to worry about that and just get all worked up about it, run around like a chicken with our head cut off, because Jesus said wars are going to be commonplace throughout the rest of history. What he's saying is these things do not equal the end. Now, so then Jesus begins to answer their questions, starting with question three, and that is what are the signs of the uh, ending of the age? Now, because we studied through the book of Daniel already, we understand that Jesus and the disciples met when he says the end of the world, that he's speaking of a period of time and age, as we've already discussed. They're speaking specifically of the age of the Gentiles. So Jesus now begins to tell what signs will announce that this current age is at its end. He answers the question, what are the signs of the ending of that age? And we see here that it's, he's answering what is going to bring what started here with Babylon to an end 
at the end of the tribulation or the uh, uh, period, those seven years of tribulation. Well, go back to Matthew chapter 24 and look at verses 7 and 8 with me here tonight. It says, For nation shall rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there shall be famines and pestilences and earthquakes in diverse places. All these are the beginning of sorrows. Now, my friends, that word sorrows at the end of uh, verse number 8 is the Greek word odin, which means uh, the pain of childbirth, travail pain, birthing pains, intolerable anguish. It's in reference to the dire calamities that precede the advent of the Messiah. And what he says, what Jesus is saying here is that the signs of the end of the age will act like birthing pains, is what Jesus said. Now, I know quite a bit about birthing pains. We have three children. And you say, Pastor, how do you know so much about it? Like I always say, I've had a common cold. And when women give birth, they almost know the pain of a man with a common cold. And so I know exactly what giving birth is all about, right? But here's some truth. My wife would testify to this, and any of you ladies who have had, uh, have had children, you would know the pain of childbearing, that it is a very painful experience, to say the least, right? Am I, am I correct on that? Uh, I am not speaking from experience here this evening, uh, but from what I've been able to hear. But as we consider these things about the pains of childbirth, uh, it can be mild at first, can't it? Ladies, you know that you could probably be at the beginning stages of labor and not even know it uh, because the pains are mild at, at first and then they increase in severity as they repeat and they increase in frequency as they repeat as well. Um, and so as we see these things unfolding and these signs take place, Jesus is saying, here's how you're going to know that the end is coming, to, uh, to an, it's coming near, how this age is about to come to a close, because these things are going to be evident. They're going to be mild at first. They're going to grow in severity as they repeat again. They're going to grow in frequency as they are severe and repeat again. And another side note in this is the fact that uh, birthing pains ultimately lead to the birth of a new life. All of that that you experience, ladies, is all kind of washed away as you hold that little baby in your hands, right? And honestly, my friends, this is exactly what the tribulation's all about. To bring new life to the Jews once again, to bring them back to the, to the Lord, back to the Messiah. Amen. And so we find here that as Christ says, here is the signs of my coming, or the coming of the ending of the age, I should say rather. Here are the signs that the end is coming. The signs are that the nation shall rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There shall be famines and pestilences and earthquakes in diverse places. And all of these are like, are like the beginning of sorrows. We said that word sorrows is literally meaning the beginning of the pains of birth, birthing pangs. And so as we consider that, we understand how all this works. And first we know that, as we said already, that birthing pains can be painful uh, at first and so on and so forth. But then also we find that the, uh, uh, the comparison that Jesus offers for the signs of the ending of the age. And, 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 I, and let's look at these specific signs here tonight, as we see on the slide in verse number 7. The first sign that's going to start off slowly it's going to grow in its severity. It's going to grow in its frequency. The first sign 
is that nation shall rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. Now, if you've been paying attention at all tonight, you probably put a pause already on me, and you're thinking, now, preacher, you just told me that wars are not a sign of the ending of this time. But kingdom against kingdom and nation against nation sure sounds a lot like what, church? War, it does. But in order to understand that, we, under, need, to under, we need to understand the phrase in this historical context. In Jesus' day, a term, a terminology like nation against nation, kingdom against kingdom, was a euphemism, if you may, a, a, a phrase for a specific type of war. The war of ultimate wars, if you may. And Jesus says that this is a sign that the age is drawing near, that this type of war, an ultimate war, will begin slowly, it will increase in its frequency and severity and come to a culmination ultimately. That phrase is, nation shall rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. We don't use that vernacular today, but we might use the term world war. And in fact, it wasn't until the 20th century that our world ever experienced a war to this extent. With World War I in 1914, Europe entered into the war, but because of pacts and alliances, the war eventually dragged most of the earth into its fight. And in fact, there was a rough estimate of about 88% of the world's population that would have been involved directly in what we know as World War I. Now, talk about nation rising against nation and kingdom against kingdom, right? Now, my friends, let me ask you a question, though. This war was so unique in its day that it had a special term, not nation against nation or kingdom against kingdom like the Bible days was, but there was a term for World War I in its day known as what? The war to end all wars. We could substitute nation against nation, kingdom against kingdom for that type of a war. And the reason why they said that is because, man, there's nothing been like this before, and surely it's never going to happen again. But boy, were they wrong. Because not long after that, another war took place, World War II, and at this time, 95% of the world's population was involved in World War II. Now we know why Jesus specifically ruled out just regular old wars as a sign, because those are common. But a war that brings nation against nation and kingdom against kingdom, one that is worldwide in its impact, is one that is going to mark uh, the coming of the ending of this age. But notice, so far, the first one started, it started off slow, and it started off with a, a, a smaller portion, but then it again happened again, and it increased in its frequency, because now instead of just once, it's happened twice, and it increased in its severity, because now there's 95 instead of just 88% of the world that is involved in it. And we know that the final war that is talking about here in this time of revelation is going to include the entirety of the earth. Everyone that is involved, that is alive at that time is going to be a part of it. So he says one of the signs is a worldwide war that, that is going to take place. We find the next sign that Jesus said is that the ending of the age is that of famine and pestilences. He says there in uh, the middle part of, uh, or the last part of verse number seven, there shall be famines and pestilences and earthquakes in diverse places, and all these are the beginnings of sorrows. 
Now, famine is common on our earth. We, know, we understand that. We, go to, we, we turn on any TV station, and probably sometime throughout the program, there's going to be an uh, infomercial asking you to send just 25 cents a day to help with uh, hunger across the world, or whatever the case might be. Uh, Twitter went crazy recently for Elon Musk to sell some of his stocks, because if he would just sell some of it, he could end world hunger, they said. And he said, well, prove it to me, and I'll do it. And uh, I like him a lot. I mean, uh, he, he, he just puts their feet to the fire. But nevertheless, uh, uh, we know that hunger and famine and so on and so forth is common in our world today. But there's indicators that it's even growing as we speak today. Uh, in fact, I don't know how well you can see that, but in fact, uh, there's indications today that famine is growing in severity and frequency and impacting more and more people than ever. It says, uh, uh, the, the, the uh, article here, it is important to emphasize that in 2007, 2008, the number of people suffered, uh, suffering from hunger increased by 140 million people. This marked increase is due to the explosion of food prices in several countries. Retail food prices increased as much as 50% or even more. The very part of grain cultivation, corn, wheat, etc., towards the production of uh, fuels is part of the reason behind that. But my friends, I, you don't have to be, a, be someone that's scour, scouring the internet to get these, uh, this information. If you've been to Walmart or Fry's here recently, you'll notice that the shelves are a little barer than they've, they have been in, in weeks and months and years past as well. Food prices are steadily increasing and supplies are, are falling short. Food riots have erupted almost simultaneously all over major regions of the world. In March 2007, the price of grains uh, staples has incre had increased by 88%. The price of wheat had increased by 181% over a three-year period. The price of rice had increased by 50% over the last three months. 6.2 billion people around the world live on less than $2 a day and spend 60 to 80% of their income on food. Hundreds of millions can't afford to even eat. And so inventories of, in grocery stores are limited depending on the supply regular, regularity and so on and so forth. But Jesus said that how are we going to know that the, the end of this time frame, this age, is getting ever closer? Well, it's going to be like the beginnings of sorrows or the, birth, the, the pains of childbirth. It's going to start off slowly. It's going to increase in its severity, increase in its frequency. And then he gives these signs. The signs are that worldwide wars will be part of it. Famine and pestilences will be part of it. And he says, lastly, there will be earthquakes. He says, earthquakes in diverse places, meaning earthquakes in places that oftentimes they hadn't been before. And the way that uh, earthquake science is done and research has kept track and such, it's easy for us to know that increase in earthquakes are taking place in our world today as well. You can hop online and you can search uh, the USGS website and select the magnitudes and so on and so forth and do all that information and study it out. That shows a general rise in earthquake activity worldwide in recent de decades as well. Um, in particular, the number of high-intensity earthquakes in the U.S. have increased dramatically over the past three decades. And uh, you see down there in 2009, 4,262, and that doubled in a year's time, and just in that time frame there. Um, we find, uh, uh, here, here's the report, the average rate of big earthquakes, those larger than magnitude 7, has been 10 per year since 1979. 
The study reported that rates rose to 12.5 per year starting in 2000, I'm sorry, 1999, and then jumped to 16.7 per year in 2010, a 65% increase compared to the rate since 1979. This increase accelerated in the first three months of 2014 to more than double the average since 1979, the research reported. In fact, states like Oklahoma and Arkansas have seen unexplained, uh, unexplainable rises in earthquake activity uh, in, uh, on an order of magnitude as well. Uh, here's an article about it. The weekend earthquakes were among the strongest yet in the state that has seen a dramatic, unexplained increase in seismic activity. Oklahoma typically had about 50 earthquakes a year until 2009. Then that number spiked and, th- and 1,047 quakes shook the state last year from 50 to one, over 1,000. Talk about an increase, right? Arkansas also has seen a big increase in earthquake activity. I've never been in a literal earthquake uh, like maybe some of you have that maybe lived in other places or out in California. But I was, when we were living in Arkansas, I got up early one morning. I was standing in front of the mirror. And I just things did not feel right. Something felt off. I kind of looked over at the uh, towel rack and the towel was shaking just so ever so slightly. It was only for a second. I went about my day, turned on the news a little bit later on, and next thing you know, I'm reading that not far from there, there was a a small earthquake that had taken place. Nothing to brag about, uh, but it was very odd for the region that we lived in. And what I'm saying is this type of thing is happening more and more and unexplained as well as things go on. Um, Looking at previous decades compared to the prior century, the rise is especially dramatic as well. Between 1978 to 2008, Oklahoma experienced an average of just two quakes of 3.0 magnitude or greater. As of June, there had been about 207 such quakes recorded in the state in 2014, according to the U.S. Geographical Survey. The upward trend started in 2009 with 20 quakes of 3.0 or greater, then 43 the following year, and jumped every year with the exception of 2012. We find worldwide earthquakes are on the rise as well, and an increase of 43% in the, uh, of 7.0 earthquakes in the United States since uh, the 1900s. So we find here tonight that Jesus says that world wars, famine, earthquakes tell us that we're near the end of the age and that they will follow a pattern of birthing pangs getting worse as time goes on. So what does that tell us about what to expect expect in the tribulation? We should expect that the things we've seen already just get dramatically worse. And in fact, that's that, uh, what, we, what we find as we look at the first events that unfold in, in Revelation chapter 6. We'll get into that next week. So altogether, before tribulation begins, we have seen seven signs that the world receive world will receive to know that the end of the age is near. We're getting close to that is what we're saying. Jesus gives us world wars, famines, earthquakes, and, uh, and so on and so forth in the Olivet Discourse. And earlier we learned about the church experience apostasy. We learned out of Daniel that the kings would uh, ruling would sign a covenant with Israel so that they could sacrifice, and the church would ultimately be removed. And, uh, and so we find here that so far we've gotten... Seven different pictures, seven different signs that the age is drawing closer and closer. World wars, 
increasing famines, increasing earthquakes, church apostasy, as we looked at 2 Thessalonians 2, 10 kings would rule, as we saw in Daniel 2 in, in chapter 7, uh, covenant signed with Israel, as we saw in Daniel 9 as well, and then the church resurrected in Revelation 4, 2 Thessalonians 2 as well. But there's two other signs that precede the tribulation and are announcing the end is near. Let me give you these two quickly. I'm just going to read the portions of Scripture. We're going to move on tonight and be done uh, for this evening. But we find the first one in Ezekiel 20, verses 33 through 37. Ezekiel 20, verses 33 through 37, it says, As I live, saith the Lord God, surely with a mighty hand and with a stretched out arm and with fury poured out will I rule over you. And I will bring you uh, out from the people and will gather you out of the countries wherein ye are scattered. And a mighty hand and with a stretched out arm and with fury poured out. And I will bring you into a wilderness of people and there will I plead with you face to face like as I pleaded with your fathers in the wilderness in the land of Egypt. So will I plead with you, saith the Lord. And I will cause you to pass under the rod and will bring you into the bond of the covenant. Ezekiel says that the people of Israel will be regathered from where they were scattered and they will reenter the land of Israel. Now, you might think of historically, what was it, 48, that the, uh, 1948, right, that the, uh, the Israel became a nation again, and they're living back in Jerusalem, although they, don't, although they don't own all of that. That, again, if it follows the sign of birthing pains, starts off slow, increases in severity, increases in frequency, we find that Jesus will bring his people back as well. Finally, Malachi tells us that a mysterious Old Testament character will return to Israel before the ending of, before tribulation. In fact, we find this in Micah chapter, um, Malachi, I'm sorry, chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. For behold, the day cometh that shall uh, burn as an oven, and all the proud, yea, and all that do wickedly shall be stumbled. Uh, and the day of the co that cometh shall burn them up, saith the Lord of hosts, that it shall leave them neither root nor branch. But unto you that fear my name shall the Son of Righteousness arise and, uh, with healing in his wings, and ye shall go forth and grow up as calves in the, of the stall, and ye shall tread down the wicked, and they shall be, uh, be ashes under the soles of your feet in the day uh, that I shall do this, saith the Lord of hosts. Remember ye the law of Moses, my servant, which I commanded unto him in Horeb for all Israel with the statutes and judgments. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And he shall turn the heart of the fathers of, of, to the children and the heart of the children to the fathers, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. See, Malachi tells Israel that a day of fire, burning, and judgment is coming to the earth, which is a reference, no doubt, of the devastation of tribulation. But in verse 5, uh, the prophet calls this time a, uh, a time of great and dreadful day of the Lord. We've learned earlier that that's already a reference of the tribulation as well. So we know... Uh, this is a reference to that seven-year period, and Malachi says that he will send the prophet Elijah before that day as well. He's going to turn the hearts of the fathers back, uh, referring to the, uh, to the fact that they are going to be back in line with what the, more like the children of Israel would have desired of the Lord back in the old days and so on and so forth. And so we've seen tonight that that brings us then uh, a list of nine different signs that the Lord has given. Of those nine signs, five of them have already begun to start unfolding. World wars, increasing famines, increasing earthquakes, earthquakes, church apostasy, Israel beginning to regather in the land. 
The only four signs of four events that have to take place before this age comes to an end is the ruling of ten kings worldwide, uh, the church resurrected or raptured out, the covenant that is signed with Israel, that's the mark of the beginning of the tribulation period, and the return of Elijah. Of course, Elijah was taken up in that whirlwind, right, as we know from the Old Testament scriptures as well. What am I getting at tonight? Why do I share this? The reason I share this is to help us to, to hopefully sense the urgency of how close we have to be to this event right here. Because if there's nine events that are going to be culminating and be signs of the age coming to an end, and five of them at least have already begun, more than half of them have already begun, we are right there on the precipice of the ending of this thing, church. I believe it with all my heart. And with these signs, well, you say, well, I mean, people have been saying that for years and even centuries. How many of these things have been true ultimately, though? Well, not till the 20th century was this even a possibility. So what I'm saying is we're closer and closer and closer with every single day. If it happens tomorrow, praise the Lord. If it happens 100 years from now, praise the Lord still. I'm just saying I'm, we are a whole lot closer now than we were in John's day. And we seem to be so much more closer than many are even, even believing that we truly are. The disciples said, Jesus, tell us how we can know that this age is coming to a near. And he gave us some of those signs. And we see from other places some of these signs as well. And as you see on the screen, five of the nine have already began to start unfolding. If there does not spark earnest uh, desire to accomplish what we can for the Lord in our hearts while we can, I don't know what else will. There must be a sense of urgency. There must be a sense that this, th this day could be the last day we've had. Tomorrow could be the last time we have an opportunity to tell someone about Christ. And church, let us be faithful all the way until the end in striving to accomplish the Lord's work. Now, we're going to jump into chapter 6 next week. We're going to start seeing these events unfold and the beginning of, uh, of, the, uh, of the tribulation ultimately officially begin. As Jesus broke that first seal and the event starts to unfold after that covenant has been signed. Our Father, we thank you for this, uh, this evening. And uh, there was a lot that was covered here tonight. We, I know that. But Lord, I ask now that through the, uh, the imagery and uh, through just your spirit guiding us tonight, Lord, that you will have helped us to uh, understand and to comprehend uh, your word here this evening and that you will just guide us into all truth. That ultimately you would be glorified through this knowing that you are uh, the, the navigator of, the, of history, your navigator of what's going to unfold. And Lord, I ask now that you would uh, accomplish your will and your work in our lives and through this time of prayer tonight as well. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.